Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. As always, opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the Naval War College, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So today we're uh, excited to be joined again by Team Krulak non-resident fellow, Dr. James Holmes, as part of our new focus on Russia and Ukraine. He's a professor of strategy, the inaugural holder of the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy, and a two-time visiting professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College. Dr. Holmes is also a prolific author with hundreds of book chapters and essays under his belt, and his book, Red Star Over the Pacific, China's Rise, and the Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy is on the Navy Professional Reading List and the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Indo-Pacific Command Professional Reading Lists. Finally, he is the first broadcast guest to have a three-peat on the show, so we're again very grateful for the generous donation of his time to our series and to our community of interest. So, sir, thanks again for joining us, and I'll turn it over to you. Hey, and thanks. Uh, thanks for the kind introduction, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you all down at Marine. Uh, I just wanted to talk to, uh, just talk briefly through not so much, not so much the Black Sea, not so much the local aspects of the the Russia Ukraine uh, situation, which are which are all over the news. But I wanted to I wanted to talk to talk through a little bit, uh, just, just briefly, some remarks coming out of Moscow about the potential for for Russia to station missiles of some type or and or true and or troops in the Caribbean Sea, uh, specifically potentially in Venezuela and or Cuba. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm less interested in whether the Russians will do that. I, th I, does, I do think it does make some strategic sense if they think that they, by mounting a token deployment of forces to the Caribbean, they could actually, they could actually siphon, siphon away uh, U.S. forces from, uh, from Russia's near abroad, and particularly along the Ukrainian frontier. So I, so I think there is some logic to it. I don't know how likely it is. It may just be talk coming out of, coming out of the negotiations between the United States and Russia last week. But if we if we posit that this might happen, we know it has happened before. Back in 1962, 60, 60 years ago, uh, we have, this is when the Cuban Missile Crisis took place, which a a, a, a somewhat uh, similar circumstance in which Russia placed or the Soviet Union rather was about to place uh, missiles in Cuba as a response to U.S. Uh, stationing missiles in Turkey and, and of, of course uh, in in Russia's near abroad near abroad. So there is pre historical precedent uh, for this. There's also strategic sense behind it. And therefore, why don't we just posit what happens? How might the United States respond to this? And the, the way I the way I look at it personally, I always re, I always reach back to U.S. Uh, diplomatic and military history. We actually we actually have several potential pre precedents for a U.S. response to, to Russia mounting such a deployment in our own backyard. First of all, and they all derive from the Monroe Doctrine. I posit in my forthcoming essay, I posit four four of these. Three or three are certainly a, a variants of the Monroe Doctrine. The fourth, I think, the fourth, the Cuban Missile Crisis itself, I think, also falls under the loose under the loose rubric of, of the Monroe Doctrine, even though even though that doctrine dared not speak its name by the nineteen by the nineteen sixties. First of all, the very the very first uh, potential future I see would be a repeat of the Monroe Doctrine as originally enunciated in, in the eighteen twenties by uh, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams and, and President James Monroe himself. The, the, the Monroe Doctrine, you can find it out there in places uh, online like the like the Avalon Project up at uh, Yale Law School and so forth. It came in two separate passages of the Monroe Doctrine. 
But they basically said they basically said there there shall be no European return to recolonize Latin American republics that had recently won their won their independence through a series of of uh, revolutions in the 18 teens and into the 1820s. So basically, so basically, this is an American attempt to freeze the status quo, so that so that European empires they, they might they they might hold what they already had in 1823 when the doctrine came out, but they were not allowed. The United States would not permit them to come back and restore the rule either directly or by proxy. Now, there's an interesting thing about the Monroe Doctrine as it was originally uh, uh, formulated, and that is that we had no way to enforce it. We, we there was a, we did not have a, a serious army, Marine Corps, or uh, or Navy able to able to basically police an entire hemisphere to prevent the French Empire or whoever from coming back to coming back to the New World, the Spaniards or whatever. But what to, but what we did have was, was a silent partner, just by, just by a confluence of interest between the United States and the former mother country, Great Britain. The Royal Navy more or less acted as the guarantor, the silent guarantor of the Monroe Doctrine for most of the for most of the 19th century, thus letting the United States uh, do spread to the West Coast, undergo its uh, undergo its uh, uh, its revolution, not its revolution, its civil war, undergo its industrial age and so forth, without actually having to to enforce its uh, its its own foreign policy doctrine. So, you could, in a sense, you could call the Monroe Doctrine as it originally existed a doctrine of 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 purpose without power. Somebody else supplied uh, somebody else supplied the power, and thus the United States could free ride, or essentially free ride on British supplied maritime security. So. That's a, so that's a, that's model number one. I don't think that, I don't think that that really has a lot of applicability today because obviously the United States does have, does have uh, not only purpose but also significant military power to this day. And in fact, it's it's a, it's grown in the world well beyond anything that Monroe or Adams could have imagined. The, the, the Monroe Doctrine was basically a doctrine for the Western Hemisphere. So so that, so I think I think that one is, we can we can take that one on board. It's interesting and so forth, and it provides us a sounding board. But at the same time, it doesn't. It, it, there's very little chance that this will provide any real guidance in Washington today. Secondly, leap, leap forward to leap forward to the second model of the Monroe Doctrine. In the in the 1880s, this is when Congress uh, decided, in its wisdom, to lay down uh, America's first serious battle fleet. It was a, a, a series of big gun armored uh, armored steam uh, steam driven ships. So there, so, this, so this gives the United States some ability to to enforce the Monroe Doctrine as that fleet matures. And in fact, about 15 years after that, uh, the the legislation comes down in 1883. In, in 1898, the United States uh, sees fit to use that to use that fleet to to uh, attack a rival empire, the, the Spanish Empire, in the Spanish American War, drives the Spaniards out of Cuba and Puerto Rico and places like that. And also, and also out of, out of the Philippine Islands, and thus, and thus spreads the United States sway into 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 the Eastern Hemisphere for the first time, and again makes the United States a, a modest colonial empire of of itself. So, in, in, in this, to me, this this model of the Monroe Doctrine really culminates in 1895, not 1898. This is a, this is when the United States uh, sees fit to try to mediate. In fact, it demands the right to mediate a dispute between Great Britain, which is still a resident power in South America, and Venezuela, as it, as it happens, uh, the, the the loosely the loosely uh, demarcated border between between British Guyana and, and Venezuela uh, was 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 actually delineated. Gold and, and other natural resources were were discovered along that frontier, and that and, the, and thus this became a, a, a focus of uh, dispute between the between the two countries. So it looked like there might be war. The United States didn't want war in the Caribbean basin, and therefore and therefore President Grover Cleveland and his Secretary of State Richard Olney demanded demanded the right to mediate between the two countries. 
in the course of in the course of the exchange of diplomatic correspondence between the United States and the British leadership under uh, under Lord Salisbury, only only sends a note to Salisbury. And he says the United States is now practically sovereign in the Western Hemisphere, or he, he says on this continent, but he, he's referring to to the Western Hemisphere, and that's a pretty striking thing to say. I mean. It, Anybody listening to this podcast has has uh, studied uh, has studied a little bit of international law and dip, international relations, and we all know we all know that uh, that uh, that sovereignty connotes a monopoly on the use of force within certain frontiers, within certain borders that we call uh, or within we, which we claim this territory. Essentially, this is state ownership. If the United States is actually it's actually claiming practical sovereignty over an entire hemisphere, that is a boy. That's a massive up uh, uptick. In the in the ambitions expressed in the Monroe Doctrine. In fact, I, I, I personally call this America's strongman doctrine. This is a, a very different, uh, it's a very different uh, interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine, in which the United States is essentially claiming the right to get its way on anything that it wants to get its way on in the Western Hemisphere. So I, I think that uh, I think when you think about this, I think I think there's a, there's a possibility. Nobody's going to refer to uh, to to the Cleveland administration or the or secretary only or anything. But I, but I think without mentioning this precedent, this this could provide guidance for the United States today. It, it, it would like to keep a, a, other a rival powers out of the Caribbean, out of the Western Hemisphere, just because it can. And I think that so I think there's a very proprietary instinct that's uh, that, that's on display in the 1890s. And I think that's uh, I think that's something that that commends itself to our attention. Nextly, I would uh, and thankfully and thankfully, by the way, we the United States the United States only treated only only claimed sort of quasi sovereignty for about a decade. In fact, a little bit less than a decade. If you leap ahead about nine years into the into the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. He he articulates he articulates something he, that uh, historians call the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, and what the and what it, and the, the context for this is in the in the in the early twentieth century there's been a, there's been a spate of uh, debt defaults in, in the Caribbean Sea. Weak governments would take out loans from European banks. Uh, they would be they would either fall or be unable or unwilling to repay their debts. And common practice, common practice when that happened was the bankers in Europe would go to their governments, ask for diplomatic intervention. If, if the two governments could, could not work things out so that the, the loans got repaid, the European government would send the Navy. The Navy, and what would the Navy do when it got to the Caribbean Sea? It, it would seize the customs facility in, in, that, in that country, in, in the defaulting country, and, and, send, and thus seize the customs revenue coming through, coming through that customs house. That was how governments usually derived their tax revenue back in those days, and therefore that was a good that was a good way to, to to get to get the revenue back to repay the bankers back home back home in Europe. So, uh, but in the, that wasn't that wasn't something that T, that TR President Roosevelt really worried about. He believed that countries should uphold their international obligations, but he also he also worried about a, a breach of the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine had declared all the way back to 1823 that Europeans shall not seize territory in the in the in the Americas. Uh, TR sees the potential for that to happen. The Dominican Republic is is is, is a catalyst. Uh, there was a, there was a, a situation in this genre in the Dominican Republic that prompted him to to articulate his corollary, in which he said, "We are not going to allow Europeans to seize American territory that they might then use to build a naval base." And those stationed warships in America's backyard, threatening the sea lanes that would ultimately run to the to the Panama Canal uh, when that opened up in in 1915. So it's a very it's a very preventive doctrine. It's a, it's about using power 
to us to essentially keep Euro Europeans at arm's length, and, and ultimately, and ultimately, he believed also help American republics get back on their feet. So he he, he essentially the Roosevelt Corollary. You can also find this online. It, is, it essentially says the United States reserves the right to intervene in Caribbean in Latin American affairs when a government is unwilling or unable to to uphold its obligations. That, that might uh, lead to a seizure of, of American territory. So, so again, he tried. Uh, T.R. takes this very muscular doctrine, and he tries to put it on more of a more of a um, almost a quasi legal foundation. He's setting a standard for U.S. intervention, rather 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 than actually uh, reserving the right to intervene willy nilly in in, in Latin American affairs. So, I, I call this the constabulary model of the Monroe Doctrine. Now I, I should point out, and, and this this could actually be another model, but but I, it starts getting to be a little elaborate when you start doing it. It's good, it's good to keep models for, of, of potential futures uh, simple. But I at least should point out that after TR leaves office, his successors, uh, 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 Taft and ultimately Woodrow Wilson, they take the TR corollary and they run amok in, in Latin America. It gets it gets it gets to such a such an extent that. Uh, that, uh, that the United States, the U.S. government, is actually forbidding Latin American countries to take out loans in European banks and requiring them to take out loans in American banks. Uh, and, and so, I mean, he's to, they're, they're taking the TR corollary to the nth degree, and this grates on Latin American sensibilities to this day. If you ask somebody from Latin America about this, chances are you're going to get an earful. And I think, and I think there's, I think there's some reason for that. So, so, so the TR corollary actually does make a comeback after TR's time is misused and ultimately is disavowed in the 1920s and with it with it the monroe doctrine more or less goes away as a staple of uh or at least nobody talks about it so much uh, in, in washington just because of that taint that comes that comes out of the 19 teens and the 1920s so anyway that's a, so anyway the, the constabulary model for me is a third model of, of that could help explain how washington today might react to a russian deployment in our backyard I actually don't. I actually don't think that that's going to be a direct model, simply because uh, presumably Cuba and/or Venezuela would invite Russia to come in. There would there would be no forcible seizure of territory. So I think that that's. I think that one's probably off to the side a little bit as well. And lastly, there and lastly, there's 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis itself. And again, as, as I, I briefly went over what that was. Uh, We've we've mostly studied it in, in uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy history and in military history. Basically, this is the United States uh, articulating a kind of reciprocity related to not not the Monroe Doctrine by name, but to, to that proprietary instinct. Essentially, the United States is 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 offering. It, it, ultimately, the John Kennedy administration agrees to remove the missiles from Turkey in response for in, in response for the Soviet Union taking those ships that were carrying weapons to go to Cuba out of the Caribbean. So. The Russian Navy goes home. We come home from we come home from Turkey in a nuclear sense, and that's kind of how that one is. That, that's kind of how that one is is uh, uh, was was resolved, albeit with a, with a, uh, the real possibility of of, of warfare and, and including potentially nuclear warfare, ninety miles off the off the off the Florida coast. So and so again, things got very tense in 1962. So having laid out those those four models, the original Monroe Doctrine, the Free Rider Doctrine, the Constabulary Doctrine of T.R. Uh, and the, oh, I'm sorry, the strongman doctrine of Cleveland and only, only and then, and then the, the, the TR corollary itself and the Cuban Missile Crisis, that, that provides four rough guides to potential uh, American responses to a Russian deployment of missiles or troops today. Which, one, which ones actually potentially describe what we might do? I would say, again, I think I, I hinted that the strongman, the sort of proprietary doctrine towards the Western Hemisphere might come into play. And I think, and I think obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis precedent might come into play as well. 
because I think I, I think that kind of reciprocity is what Russia is hoping for today. They agree to leave our backyard to us. We we agree to leave their near abroad to them to do as they see fit. So the far, the near abroad being in this case, I think the certainly the former Soviet Union, but also the former Soviet Empire, including places like Romania and so forth, that are now NATO members. So the the, the NATO the NATO alliance, of course, throws a little bit of a, a, a new wrinkle into this Monroe Doctrine thinking. And I and I think that makes that I think that makes the Cuban Missile Crisis a particularly uh, uh, rich precedent to study as we, as we contemplate what Washington might do. So there's there's four potential alternative futures, four ways four ways to gauge a potential reaction out of Washington in the com coming days and months. Or it's always it's always possible that we might spin off in, in another direction altogether. But that but that too is is useful guidance from looking back at U.S. diplomatic history. And that's how I see things. I look forward to uh, to to the important part of our being together this morning, which is uh, is the interactions between you and me. So thanks thanks Ian for thanks for the platform. Yeah, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Holmes. And um, yeah, I've got a, a few questions here and then uh, our Deputy Lieutenant Colonel Zapata is online too. So um, I'll turn it over to him for any questions he's got here shortly. So um, first thing I had was, you know, you you highlighted a couple of possible options, um, but whatever option, you know, we end up picking or if there's a fifth one that we have, yeah, have isn't on the list yet, even, do you think even, you know, if we, if we offer that as uh, something for the Russian leadership to think about, at this point, do you think that would have any any impact on their decision making framework? You know, are like would they be? Do you think they're really open to a possible option of reciprocity or something or not? Well, I think so. I mean, I think so. I think that's exactly what they want out of this uh, out of this situation. I think that's why they've been so vocal and so uh, saber rattling and all this kind of thing that we've seen in the last in the last weeks and months. And I think that's. I mean, they they tell us that that's what they want. They in fact they in fact they are more or less demanding a rollback of uh, NATO deployments. Uh, from from the from the near abroad, uh, I think I think they I think they want want us to roll back to, to basically to our posture in 1997. So you know, prior to NATO engagement and enlargement, as we called it back in the 1990s, when uh, NATO was doing that uh, that expansion process, and they, so I mean I mean and there's, there's there's actually a rich debate to be had. In fact, it is being had about uh, the wisdom of NATO NATO enlargements. Both back then, but also today, it's the uh, the alliances. At least I think it was 2004 or thereabouts. Uh, at least in principle, agreed that Ukraine would become part of NATO, and that's a, that seems to be to be what has gotten uh, gotten the attentions of Putin and, and his and his advisors in Moscow. They don't they don't want that. They would they would like to they would like to resume that sphere of influence. I don't I, I don't know what to make to make of claims that uh, Putin actually wants to formally reconstruct the Soviet Union, but he certainly wants to be the dominant player within the former Soviet sphere. And I think that's what they're looking for. So I don't I don't see any compelling reasons for the Russians to be in the Caribbean Sea. That probably looks like kind of an easy trade off for them if they can get NATO to retreat from from uh, from Russian borders. And of course, and of course, uh, if they if, if Ukraine did become part of NATO, I mean, that's a, that does bring NATO to Russia's frontiers. And that's a, that's something that's very hard to tolerate. For any for any big power, I think, and I think, and by the way, I think there's an East Asian uh, uh, analog to this, and that would be North Korea. China, China's China's very loath to see uh, Korea unify simply because potentially, if if that was under Southern rule, that could potentially bring uh, U.S. forces to uh, to to Russian and Chinese frontiers in the Far East. So, it's a, so uh, big powers just don't like having adversaries right on their right right on their borders. And I think it's I think it's really not much more complicated than that. So. I, so my guess would be that they would be receptive to to such a uh, to such a, a modus vivendi, such an arrangement, whatever you want to call it. Oh yeah, so that actually um, dives into the one of the other ones I had here, which was, I mean, you know, 
that whole concept of uh, having sort of the say in your near abroad, you know, realizing, you know, Ukraine joining NATO that uh, odds probably very low at a minimum, you know, in the here and now. But there's also all those other countries who are in NATO that, as you just said, you know, Russia is looking to have them essentially roll back. So how uh, those other countries, um, how would how do we square that that request from Russia, you know, with with whatever the, you know, the logic or um, behind it that they're addressing in terms of how we would respond to our near abroad, you know, though, though lots of those NATO countries, we've already drawn the NATO line around them. How do you how do you address Russian concerns without sort of pulling the rug out from under those people who you've already drawn the line around as part of your your alliance? Yeah, I think that, I think that's uh, I think you've hit on the crux of the, the crux of the dilemma. I mean, we've we've actually made commitment. I mean, once a country makes makes a commitment, makes a public commitment, and it's it is engaged its national interest, it is also engaged its national reputation and honor. And <clears throat> pardon me, if it's a if it do, if it does roll those commitments back, I mean, it's it, I mean that's a, that's a significant thing because you have made yourself look untrustworthy, weak, feckless. Allies and friends, and potential allies and friends all over the world might notice that. There's been a lot of talk since the since the pullout from Afghanistan uh, last year, last August, that uh, the United States has lost face, lost its reputation as, as a trustworthy ally, and so forth. And so, uh, yeah, I think that leaves us kind of in a pickle. It's, and uh, I guess it, my advice to the administration, if, uh, if if they're listening, would be to would be be to try to take this private. Making it public makes it really hard to compromise. So I don't I don't know if we, I don't know if by doing the Teddy Roosevelt thing, speaking softly uh, while carrying a big stick. That that might be the way to do it, and uh, so I, I think there could be value in looking back at how at how he and people and people like him, very circumspect politicians, handle things. Because I think just uh, just uh, doing this uh, doing this in public and, and and backing each other into a corner is probably not doing a lot of good. The uh, so the one thing that's uh, and just a, just a side point, going back to what you said before, I think that, I think NATO and you said you said it's very unlikely a new Ukraine will come into NATO. I think that's actually true because there's there's fighting going on in the in the in eastern Ukraine has been has been for years. Uh, if, if if Ukraine were to sign on to NATO today, it could demand an Article Five declaration requiring the Allies to think about what the think about what should happen if it, if an armed attack occurs on a, on a NATO partner. So. We would, we might be picking war by admitting NATO to or uh, admitting Ukraine to to the alliance today. So that, that that's something that's out there as well. We're on record on record favoring it, but at the same time, I, I think that's uh, yeah. I, I would just like to see the, the negotiations go very quiet. <clears throat> yeah. So I guess you know, in in that sense, given the you know, there's already been a number of of you know, pretty public high profile meetings between the various diplomats from, you know, not just the U.S. and Russian sides, but also, uh, you know, European side, because they're, you know, that's their that's their front door, backyard, whatever you want to call it. Um, do you think is it is it possible to even go back to sort of closed door discussions about this without raising further questions about what's being discussed behind those doors? Um, or is that something that should have happened much earlier? Or do you, do you think there could still be genuine value in, in doing that and being able to come to a resolution that doesn't involve open warfare? By going to closed doors. Yeah, I think. I think <clears throat> pardon me. I think. Yeah, I think you raise an excellent point. And I and I, I actually don't know. I, it's 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 really it's really hard once you get into one of these standoffs to to to, to actually do that. I would like I would like to see the I would like to see the negotiations be very quiet and and work. And, and our, us work out something with Moscow, Moscow on a private level. It, 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 there's actually an interesting, uh, it's, it's sort of one of my stock uh, anecdotes that when I talk about uh, how to do negotiations. 
And it goes back to the it goes back to the era of Teddy Roosevelt. There, there was a, there was a there was a potential infraction of the Monroe Doctrine in, in 1902 when another one of these circumstances happened, also in Venezuela. Kind of kind of an kind of an interesting parallel today. It looked like Venezuela was not going to repay one of its European creditors. In fact, creditors in several European countries, the Europeans, particularly uh, particularly Great Britain and Imperial Germany, get together, assemble a naval squadron, and send that and send that squadron to the Caribbean to to blockade Venezuela. There's ultimately some gunfire between between the between the fleet and the Venezuelan Navy and shore facilities. TR is very TR is very worried that uh, that an infraction of the Monroe Doctrine is going to happen. He go, he goes quiet. He essentially sends Admiral Dewey, commanding basically the entire U.S. Atlantic fleet, which was basically the entire U.S. Navy in that day, sends it to the Caribbean to shatter the European fleet, deter them from seizing territory in, in the in the Americas. But and, and that's so that's cool. I mean, he he does this, but he but like I said, he goes quiet. He is so circumspect about relations with with London and with and with Berlin that it takes a century, not until 2002, in an article in the Naval War College Review, is it actually is it actually proven that this deployment actually happened? So we think about the TRB and the guy with the big glasses and the bombast and, and a huge smile, but it, you know what? This was good. This was a guy who was capable of doing things in private. So he so he, so he didn't put the so he didn't put the Kaiser and the British Prime Minister on 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 the on the spot and compel them to do something simply by simply by uh, uh, threatening to discredit them in public. So, but yeah, if, if, once you once you get into it in in, in public, yeah, it is it is kind of hard to ratchet down. So the, which is which is why I said I wish that we can do this. I don't know if we can. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of a lot of not great options out there. Yeah, when, um, when you engage when you engage a, a foreign leader's or a foreign country's honor, boy, I tell, I tell you what, we talk about interests and all that kind of stuff, but in Thucydides' terms, I mean, I think honor is honor is probably the first of the the major uh, things that drives human behavior. Great. Yeah, so, uh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, no, go ahead, sir. I was just I was just curious on your thoughts, right? On during the the previous admit or President Obama's administration, John Kerry comes out and says, hey, we're basically not going to enforce the Monroe Doctrine uh, uh, is around November of 2013, uh, which, you know, subsequent, uh, I think the day after that announcement, uh, Russia sent uh, some submarines over to Venezuela, and, and there's some lingering activities between Venezuela and Nicaragua that have been basically capitalized on by, by, by Russian uh, capabilities there. So in your thoughts, is this now turning uh, to become a, a strategic implication uh, for, for us? And, and, and I mean, what were the reasonings in, in your mind for, for doing that? And, uh, you know, you know, what kind of implications outside of the ones that we're considering here uh, or, or maybe some of the initial ones uh, unfolding into something larger? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I, I probably should have brought up the, uh, it, it never, it never, I never have understood why Kerry saw fit to bring up the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, it's, it's, it, as the, it's something that we actually, actually mentioned as a precedent in, uh, in Washington. I, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's very persuasive. I mean, we, we, there's a, there's a, the, and this is actually the value of this conversation because we're now starting to branch off in a very productive direction. I, I mean, after the after the Monroe Doctrine goes away, more or less, the TR corollary certainly goes away. The Monroe Doctrine, I think, more or less drops out of discourse in the mid-1920s. But 
what I mean, what comes after it, that's when the inter-American system that we know today starts taking shape. I, I, would, I, would, I would contend you would never get anybody in Latin America or, or Canada or anywhere like that to agree to this, but I would say this was sort of a multilateral inter-American Monroe doctrine. Designed, designed to keep uh, designed to keep hostile powers out of the new world, so that we so, so that uh, the nations here can can uh, can develop, do all the things that are worthwhile for nations to do. So, I, and, and I, which is why I thought it was counterproductive when when Kerry did that, because he he raised, he raised the prospect of a unilateral U.S. Uh, effort to keep uh, others out of the hemisphere. When in fact it would be it would probably be better to work through the organization of American states and the other other regional frameworks that uh, that we've had since the 1930s, since since him, since hemispheric defense came a, became a thing under President Hoover, and then of course under President Franklin Roosevelt. So. <clears throat> That would have, so I think that I think that Kerry, if he wanted to appeal to the Monroe Doctrine, he should have at least connected it to the inter-American inter system. We're all guardians of our own hemisphere today. We don't. We, the United States does not need to. Does not actually need to to hold the hands of Brazil. He has serious powers like Brazil and Chile and so forth. And I think that would be the way to, to be the way to frame this. And that's a, that's a potential way that uh, the United States could work to, could work through this problem today is by working by, by, by working with our neighbors to the south. So, so the, the, maybe there's a fifth model right that right there that might actually be that might actually be preferable to the other ones that I mentioned that might describe our future tra trajectory vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Yeah, great question. Love it. All right, I got uh, one more question for you, and then um, uh, if Lieutenant Colonel Zapata doesn't have anything else, I'll, I'll kick it back to you for any closing comments. But you know, I'm looking. Uh, last couple of days, there's been some um, some headlines, not about you know Russian forces heading down to the Caribbean, but this sort of new sort of gray zone type competition going off, uh, I think off the coast of Ireland, where uh, they'd sent some of their their northern fleet to do live fire missile drills, which, you know, understandably gets the attention of uh, of the Irish government. But then in response, there have been some not, you know, not United Kingdom military forces, but I think Irish fishermen putting themselves into that zone as a as a preventative measure for those uh, those exercises. Do you think that is is this something we, we might see um, more of not, you know, maybe where it's not not a formal government responding, but you have some other non-state actors, if you will, affiliated with either European or American governments sort of doing this lower level competition to try and push back. And do you do you think this this is a new a, a new worrisome level of escalation doing or could this be maybe a I don't know if off ramp is the right word, but a a, a lower level of each side sort of thumping its chest, if you will, um, without actually uh, turning into something, um, you know, more kinetic. I don't know. I, I hope that question made sense. Yeah, a, <clears throat> I was trying not to smirk at you while you were talking. I actually hadn't heard it. I had heard about the, the, the Russian drills off the Irish coast. I had not heard about heard about Irish fishermen, uh, fishermen getting in the way, but that's a my uh, God rest her soul. My uh, my mother in law was Irish, and I, I could actually see her putting out to sea and, and doing that kind of thing. This is this is a very sort of ornery people, in the in a, in a lot of ways. I think I think it's that's a fantastic story. Thanks for a writing idea. I think I'll have to I think I'll have to check on that for, for this week. But uh, yeah yeah well you know it's I mean there could be a, there could be a precedent in the South China Sea, uh, potentially in the Black Sea, Baltic. Pick, pick your favorite uh, peripheral sea. For, for fishermen to actually do this, so maybe maybe we're looking at the at the Irish maritime militia taking shape uh, much much as uh, much as the PLA or much as uh, Beijing oper operates a maritime militia in the South China Sea. I, I think there's I, I think there's a I think there's a real prospect of that. I mean, it's whether whether these people are operating at the behest of the government, I guess, is, is a question. I sort of doubt it. So it's 
it almost reminds me of the Cajun Navy that we that we see when we have natural disasters. Uh, sort of a spontaneous, a sort of a spontaneous fleet of of private craft come into being to go to New Orleans or whoever whoever suffered a hurricane. Can kind of or on, on September 11th in New, in New York Harbor to to evacuate people from uh, from Lower Manhattan. I think that yeah, I think that's uh, I certainly think that's worth studying. And in fact, I uh, I intend to study that myself. It, it is it is it, you you raise a, a, a theoretical well not a theoretical point but a legal point. These exercises and I, you have to think this is deliberate. These exercises are are happening not within the Irish uh, territorial sea, obviously, which is within twelve miles of of the of the Irish coast, but but they are happening within the exclusive economic zone. They are not illegal in any sense. They're not the, the Russians are not harvesting Irish uh, Irish resources or anything. But at the same time, you do have to think that's a that's a poke in the eye of of, of Europe. Uh, out out in the Atlantic Ocean. So, but yeah, I think I think I think that uh, I, I know you all down at the Marine Corps University are, are, are very into into studying uh, gray zone operations, and I think this is something that uh, that's worth inquiring into. But I, yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I and I I was I uh, to be clear, I was not. Um, I, I personally I don't think this is being, you know, either uh, you know at the behest of the Irish or the you know UK I, government. I, um, but I just I thought it was an interesting thing to look at because, you know, we talk a lot about these things below the threshold of our armed conflict. And it's always, you know, our competitors doing it to us. Well, you know, what if we did it to them? Right. Like, you know, flip the script and see how they would respond. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, but maybe that's a uh, that we could create some new opportunities for ourselves to to keep competition below something. I, um, yeah, absolutely. We, we, as you know, as you well know, we've been doing some gaming on this over the last over the last couple of years with uh, with Art Corbett before his untimely demise, and, and then afterwards. But uh, but yeah, we are. The, I think the outcome the outcome of the game, of, or at least my big takeaway from the game last July, I think it was, was that we need to add rungs to our escalation ladder. China has a lot of rungs. China and Russia have lots of rungs on their escalation ladder, whereas we basically have three: do nothing, shoot, or nuke them. And that, that's really not a very palatable uh, a tr menu of options. So anything we can do to, to, to try to give ourselves options so that we so that we so that we can so, so that we can do something short short of short of uh, taking one of those unpalatable options is something that we ought to be exploring. Yeah, you know, certainly, especially if we if we think that this is going to be sort of the trend of the future, more more. Uh, yeah, it is aggressive, <laughs> aggressive competition. Yeah, I think I think I think it's absolutely the way. In fact, in fact, if I were uh, if I were advising people in Moscow or Beijing, I probably would have I probably would have advised them to do this sort of thing. Certainly, as long as they think the United States is still the superior competitor, this gives them options to, to accomplish their geopolitical goals, provided they're patient and willing to do it incrementally. They can still they can still progress towards those goals. But yeah, like you said, if we can if we, if we can help. Uh, Ukraine or the Philippines or Vietnam or whoever flip that flip the script flip the script on the red teams. I think that's uh, I think that's all to the good. I actually think I actually I actually think you're starting to to see that happen in the South China Sea, which is what I which is what I spend my most of my time on. Indonesia is, is Indonesia is starting to notice that China has claims in its backyard. Uh, my my email inbox uh, reveals that Vietnam Vietnam is very very worried and very interested in encountering China. I hear from people in Vietnam most most days, which is kind of shocking to me because I don't study Vietnam. But was, but but again, this is I mean the, 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 I actually think you're starting to see a turn back against gray zone operations. Maybe there'll be some sort of balance of power that will prevail there that will uh, that will deter the bad guys from from doing what they're trying to do now. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Thank you, Zapata, sir. Do you have any other questions? Very informative. Uh, I, I got a uh, degree in international relations and uh, 
I've done some digging on this very topic. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting to see how some of these things kind of circle back around and, and still are relevant in uh, uh, today uh, in today's operating environment. Uh, certainly a factor uh, with all things considered, uh, especially uh, with with the Ukraine issue and everything else. So I'm just very curious to see how things all kind of unfold. And, and uh, at the end of the day, I, I think there's a lot of factors and it's this is just one of them that happens to impact us a little bit more directly and closer to, to the homeland here. So um, great topic. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. I, it's, I mean, we're, we're very fond of the the old uh, the old joke from Mark Twain: "History never repeats itself, but it often rhymes." And I think that I think that's what we're seeing, which is why we which is which is why we see value in studying history because of those rhymes. So there there are always differences from the past, but that, but actually uh, bouncing bouncing current events against the past and and seeing the differences, I think, is actually as instructive as finding the parallels. So so thank you for your time and effort again. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you, Dr. Holmes, uh, for for joining us for a third time, and especially on short notice, since you're kind of building building this special project as it's flying along. So, to our audience who's listened to this, thanks uh, for your time. And uh, again, I'm we're going to be having a number of special episodes uh, and other content coming out on our various channels and on our website. So, you know, we'll be we'll be promoting those, but certainly stay tuned for updates because we're trying to collect a good amount of comment. Uh, content, commentary, and insight on this topic, which is uh, which is developed very rapidly and we don't really know where it's gonna end. So Dr. Holmes, again, thank you for your, for your insights and joining us today. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.